0: I'm Marshall Kozlov,
1: And I'm Mike Duran. Welcome back to Counterbalance.
0: (music) Mike, we've got a particularly wide-ranging conversation today. Who are we speaking with?
1: We are speaking, Marshall, to Svante Cornell. Svante splits his time between washington and sweden he's a dual national and he's the head of a think tank in or or the co-chair of a think tank i think in sweden and uh, co-chair of a of a of a central asia caucuses institute here in washington dc svante cornell his brain is the best kept secret in washington dc but he has no capacity for self-aggrandizement and uh what would you call it marketing himself. So I'm here to do that job for him. He's probably the number one analyst of Central Asia in Washington, DC. If he's not number one, he's he's tied for number one with Fred Starr. Smante speaks uh, more languages than I uh, care to admit. He, he he speaks Swedish, English, of course, French. I've seen him speaking French fluently. He speaks Turkish fluently. He speaks Azerbaijani fluently, and he probably can uh, make his way in uh, in 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 Kazakh and and uh, Kyrgyz as well. I'm I'm guessing he'll let us know. Anyway, Swandi, I'm going to stop singing your praises here. Welcome Please to Counterbalance, it. the fastest growing podcast in America. How are you?
2: Thank you very much. Uh, you're too kind, and you're uh, gonna get me more enemies if if I don't have enough already. I, I hope
1: I can get you enemies. That'd be wonderful. Let me let me tell you why I wanted to have you on, uh, uh, Svante, for for two reasons. I I just got back from Kazakhstan, and while I was there, I read an article by you that came out in April uh, on on what happened in January in Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. That's what this uh, uprising or whatever you want to call it, these unpleasant events. Uh, I found the article extremely informative, and it confirmed everything that I learned on the ground in Kazakhstan, talking to Kazakhs, uh, talking to American officials and, um, uh, and and others. And so I thought I'd have you on uh, so we could talk a little bit about what happened in January, but then really a, a faster, as fast as we can, I want to discuss the place of Central Asia in the yep. um, in, in international politics and in, in, in what I would call sort of the new Cold War we're in. Get your uh, your views on that. So um, without uh, spending any more time with this introduction, why don't you just tell us in a nutshell, what happened last January in Kazakhstan?
2: Well, uh, first of all, Mike, thanks for having me on. And it's, uh, it's wonderful to talk to you. And I'm glad for this opportunity to discuss Kazakhstan and Central Asia more broadly. Because I think um, i 've been trying to hit my head against a brick wall for many years, trying to explain that if your um, if your uh, national security if the national security of the United States is dominated by great power competition and the biggest competitors are China and Russia, maybe you should be interested in the countries that are in between those two. That for some reason seems to be very hard to get people to understand, which probably says more about the level of strategic thinking in Washington at least I hope than it does about my powers of persuasion. Uh, but leaving that aside, your question about Kazakhstan uh, is uh, is important because we suddenly had a, um, a series of protests in Kazakhstan in early January, ostensibly for uh, resulting from a steep hike in uh, in, in natural gas prices. To, that 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 somehow escalated into uh, not only anti-government demonstrations but violence against uh, against both police forces and against the state institutions in the economic capital of the country in Almaty in the east. Uh, very rapidly escalated, forcing Kazakhstan to uh, to ask for help from the Russian-led Collective Security Treaty Organization, uh, which quelled these protests and and so forth. So um, this is. You know, uh, this was very confusing. Uh, it also seemed to me that it was um, read by most people through the lens of what was going on in Ukraine. The preparation for war, as we know now, uh, a lot of people saw it coming, but we didn't know that there was going to be a war. Now we know what happened in Ukraine. And this is the reason why uh, at the Institute, we just decided to produce this article, which has an analysis, but most importantly, perhaps a chronology of what we figured were the most important parts of this uh, what actually happened, uh, since nobody was really able to pay, pay attention to Kazakhstan any more than perhaps they normally would. Um, I think the, the, my, my, my conclusion is that s- several different things happened. Uh, a few different things happened. One is, you know, Kazakhstan has been, the area, uh, there There have been a lot of protests in Kazakhstan recently. This is one of the reasons that the current president, Mr. Tokayev, has been engaging in reforms because he knows that the Kazakh population demands reforms. But I don't think that that was the only story because suddenly you see <coughs> the um, uh, police forces in the country, which are normally fairly happy to quell demonstrations, didn't do so. And suddenly you had um, protests escalating with new types of people, criminal-looking people um, engaging in this violence against the state. And in this part of the world, these type of things don't happen spontaneously. You don't have criminal gangs getting involved in anti-state violence just like that. It's just these these societies are too controlled. The state security forces are are way too sophisticated for this to kind of happen by itself without anybody seeing it coming. Uh, Which is why um, my basic argument is that you had very spontaneous protests that was absolutely genuine and normal. But some people took advantage of this in order to undermine the president of the country. And my conclusion is that these are the people who benefit from the status quo, who don't want reforms, particularly political reforms to take place in the country. uh, And that's why you had the situation.
0: Could you actually, for listeners, describe the status quo in the country?
2: Well, the status quo, it depends what you mean, but I mean, the status quo is that, uh, the situation is basically back to normal. Uh, the, uh, the Russian peacekeepers came in, never really engaged with anybody, uh, because the Russian peacekeepers, frankly, were never supposed to engage with anybody. They were supposed to show the, people within the government of Kazakhstan that were not loyal to the president, that their attempt to undermine him or conduct a coup against him would not succeed because Kazakhstan had external support. Um, And after that, the Russian peacekeepers strangely uh, actually uh, left the country. That's never happened before. Russian peacekeepers are usually known as the forces that keep the pieces rather (laughs) rather than keep the peace. Uh, but this didn't happen in Kazakhstan. Uh, the uh, Russians are gone, as far as we understand. And the president announced uh, uh, accelerated political reforms, including weakening the power of the presidency, strengthening the parliament, making it easier to start political parties and a lot of other things like that. And I think the the hope from the side of the president now is that he's going to be able to do so after these events, because he also removed a lot of uh, <clears throat> people um family members, for example, of former President Nazarbayev that were occupying very important positions in Kazakhstan's economy. Uh, he removed them, he reduced them to size, if you will, and, and everybody assumes that these are the people who had the most vested interest in keeping uh, the situation as it were, rather than engaging in reform. So now it's, uh, it's kind of, we have to see, is he going to be able to push through with the reforms that he had started announcing as soon really as he took over from Nazarbayev back three years ago? Uh, or you know the situation is not made easier by the geopolitical complications, by the you know the worsening of U.S.-Russia tensions, the uh, economic sanctions in Russia also impacting Central Asia. You know, it's not it's not an easy situation.
1: So this is the uh, uh, the thing that surprised me the the most about my own attitude uh, when they when the Russian peacekeepers first went in, the CSTO peacekeepers, yeah. Like everyone else, I thought, "Oh, that's it. We've seen this before. This is like, uh, uh, you know, this is like Georgia or Donbass. and they're they're never leaving." And I, mm-hmm. I think uh, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, yep. even said something to that effect, yep. uh, which I agreed with. Uh, but then they left relatively quickly. To- uh, President Tokayev was carrying out reforms which threatened the established position of the Nazarbayev clan. Uh, the Nazarbayev clan acted against Tokayev. And then the CSTO stepped in and put its thumb on the scale in favor of President Tokayev.
2: Yes. So, surprisingly.
1: Surprisingly. Uh, and what even surprised me more is that I concluded while there, and I'm curious to get your reaction to this, that it was in the American interest as well that President Putin did what he did. That I, I was ready to read the world with a zero-sum game, especially in the background of Ukraine between the United States and Russia, and I came to the conclusion that actually what, what Putin did was okay from the American point of view. Would, would you agree with that?
2: Well, in a certain way, yes. If the alternative would have been chaos or a coup in Kazakhstan, now, what we'll never know, of course. First of all, is if President Tokayev panicked, uh, if the disloyalty within his own security. And I want to be clear: the, the only reason he called in the uh, the CSTO operation is not because you know the. People on the street were really what he was worried about, um, because obviously the amount of protesters that were there was something they could have handled. But because he was afraid, he didn't know who was loyal to him in the country's security uh, structures, whether it be the you know the intelligence services, the police, or the the military. We're not we're never I think going to know if if that. If that fear or that concern was 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 valid enough to to call in, to call in the Russian peacekeepers, of course, if that was the case, then yes. Uh, but the only reason why, if your point is correct, that what President Putin did was also in the U.S. interest, uh, is because this was not in President Putin's plans, uh, and he was very much, as we know now, focused on something else, namely Ukraine and you know if he needed an Kazakhstan was not something it was just an opportunity to make a PR coup if you will and also to uh, prevent something happening in central asia that could have derailed his 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 plan which was entirely focused on ukraine on another level however i mean the the sad part or the bad part about what happened which is not in the us interest is that it kind of drove home, again, this idea that the Central Asian states are not real countries, that somebody from the outside needs to intervene in order to establish security there. And, you know, for the past, well, six, seven years, really after the change of power in Uzbekistan, when Uzbekistan started investing heavily in Central Asian cooperation, both Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan have kind of taken the lead in uh developing regional cooperation in Central Asia that doesn't involve outside powers, read Russia and china uh and I think even uh, so they they've said at a couple of occasions that you know there are no problems in Central Asia that are big enough that we can't handle it as central asians we, we, we really don't need outside outsiders to fix our problems. we can handle it ourselves, and that is in the United States interest because we don't want. Outside powers like Russia and China to be dictating to security in Central Asia. So this really took us back in that sense, because if Kazakhstan, you know, the richest country in Central Asia can't handle its own security um, when it's faced with this type of internal troubles, well... What does that say about the prospect of Central Asia being able to handle other kinds of security issues without the Russians looking over, you know, standing and supervising them and taking care of the problem when it arises? So I think from that point of view, it's a little more complicated.
0: For more background, can you, and this is kind of a bigger question, but can you really Articulate the post-Soviet relationship between Kazakhstan and China, the United States, Russia—basically, the great powers with interests in the region. Obviously,
2: sure. I mean, it's it's not easy because <clears throat> the thing you, when you when you work with Central Asia for a long time, what you begin to realize is that these these countries' leaders don't always say what they think um, because. We like rhetoric a lot, which was you see in the Western response to the Ukraine conflict. But in this, in this part of the world, they're very careful about their rhetoric. They can do things um, that counter Russian interests, but they're not going to say so out loud. We kind of say things first and then we might do something. Um, but to answer your question, so Kazakhstan... Realized very early on that Russia is just there. Uh, You know, it's going to have to deal with Russia. It cannot live really separately or, you know, in in opposition to Russia because it has, you know, the one of the, I think the only land border in the world is comparable to the US Canadian border. Uh, It's not really demarcated. You have these, this large ethnic Russian population and your economy is closely tied to Russia. So then the idea became, well, how do we do in order to develop independence if we are this closely linked to Russia? And they figured out, well, we're going to do it by elevating the relationships with other powers so strongly that that kind of becomes a counterbalance to our links with Russia. Um, So uh, the first um, goal was to build a strategic partnership with China um, that began to rival the relationship with Russia. And then also to build one with the United States and lesser countries, if you will, bring in the Japanese, bring in the Europeans, bring in the Indians, bring in the Turks, whoever wants to be here, you know, the more the merrier. But it is really the US and, and China that are the counterbalance to Russia. And perhaps in the future, you know, maybe China is your biggest concern and you want Russia and the US as a counterbalance to China. Um, the only problem with this analysis is, well, there are two problems. First, it requires that you're not too closely integrated with the russians because then nobody's going to be able to counterbalance that and and secondly you need the other powers to be interested in being present <clears throat> and the what, with regard to the first problem when the russians launched the eurasian economic union that became very problematic because you know it threatened to make that the connection to russia so strong that nobody would be able to to, to rival that um, second the Chinese sorry, are it's uh, there. Sorry,
1: it's fine. They Just For the listeners, uh, can we just define the Eurasian Economic well, Union? Well, the Eurasian
2: Economic Union is what President Putin started back five, ten years ago when he saw that China was moving in from the east economically. Uh, the EU was moving in from the west into countries like Moldova and Ukraine and even in the South Caucasus. And he decided to lock down as many countries as he could in a... Let's say in in an entity that looks like the European Union, it looks like it's mostly focused on economic cooperation, but it's really a political unit in order to give Russia veto power over the trade and the politics of these countries. So uh, the the final point I was going to make on this is that the other problem was that, yes, China is going to be present, but in, in, in order for your policy to work, the United States has to be invested in the region. And that's become very questionable. And I think that's why the US withdrawal from Afghanistan and the way it happened was so damaging.
1: The uh, One of the things that surprised me uh, in Kazakhstan – I don't know why it surprised me, but uh, – well, let's just put it this way. I came away with a strong impression, and I would like to get your reaction to the impression. There's a very, very strong distrust of China yes. in Kazakhstan. Um, stronger than the distrust of Russia. And it kind of surprised me. Because I mean, if I'm not mistaken, a million Kazakhs died in the 30s. And while 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 Stalin was starving mm-hmm. the Ukrainians, he was also starving the Kazakhs. It's a That's lesser right. known lesser known story. Uh, a million died. Another million or so. I'm making up the numbers here, but a, a, a large n- numbers died, and a, and and large number, very large numbers, r- left and went to China, where they're yep. now in Xinjiang province, where they're not doing so well. Um, but but as far as I could tell, and uh, having spent a week in Kazakhstan, I am now one of the world's greatest experts on the subject. But I still have a little bit of doubt about certain issues, and I I, 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 couldn't tell if if I was just hearing what you know people wanted to tell me, since I'm an American, they want us to hear the, the concern about China, or but I really think I was hearing no, it's real indigenous. You know, gut level distrust of China in a way that they're not distrustful of Russia, and I don't totally understand it I, I, because yeah. since since they've been dominated by Russia and not by China. Can can you explain that to me?
2: Well, I think uh, maybe uh, I, not fully, but I think one of the aspects is that you know, messaging from government is important. And during Uh, the Soviet era, the messaging from everywhere was that China is a danger. Um, So, that's been internalized and nobody's really done anything to counter that. The Chinese haven't really done done much, especially in recent years to counter the idea that they are probably a problem. Uh, The other part is you, you referred to the famines in Ukraine, the politically engineered famines, they call it the Holodomor in Ukraine. There is really no equivalent Kazakh term because the Kazakh government has decided not to politicize it. They said, well, you know, history, we have to be very careful. And they know that the Russians are very allergic to to any any, uh, attempt to dig into Soviet crimes. And therefore, they've decided that, well, you know, let's not dig too deep into this. It's coming, it's coming slowly and organically, but the government has been very careful. So while it's there in the collective memory, it's it's also, I should mention that Nazarbayev, you know, when he came to power and Kazakhstan became independent thirty years ago, there were roughly equal numbers of Russians and Kazakhs in the country. And Nazarbayev, on the one hand, wanted to build an independent state. But on the other hand, he realized, especially seeing the civil war in Tajikistan, the ethnic conflicts in Moldova, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, that this was really an explosive issue. If this became a defining, you know question, uh, the risk of ethnic uh, conflict between Russians and Kazakhs would would be very uh, would be very real and therefore he decided to kind of not discuss not talk about this issue so that's one of the reasons the other reason i think is that um there is a cultural understanding between of russians uh, you know russian is spoken by almost everybody in kazakhstan although in, i think now in the rural areas among youth maybe not but it's basically a second language and a lot of people went to study in uh, in Russia. They watch Russian TV. Russia is familiar. They understand Russia, and also I think we have to realize that this is different from Estonia or even from Georgia, where you know the Soviet Union really was only seen as something negative. But in Central Asia, you know you have to you have to in a way compare Central Asia to what's in the south, which is Afghanistan and Iran. And if you compare Central Asia pre-Soviet and post-Soviet, well, you can see that something happened. A lot of bad things happened, but you also have to recognize that the, the technological educational level in these countries benefited very largely from from Soviet rule. So, Russia is not entirely seen as something bad in Central Asia. It's seen as something mixed, but and by the way, in large part, because of the continued dominance of Russian media in Central Asia, there is still a generally positive understanding of Russia. Whereas for China, it's really it's really very different. China is really seen as the big enemy. And obviously, the Russians are, are keeping it that way because it helps them keep their influence in the region.
0: So something I'm sure audience members are wondering then is, how did the reaction to the protests in Kazakhstan shape, if at all, what happened in Ukraine- in February, 2022, moving onwards?
2: Um, if you mean how it was shaped by, or uh, I mean,
0: I, I don't did, think- did, did, did it did it factor in, yeah, good good. Well, I correction. think the, the did, did main connection in here,
2: I don't think that what happened in Kazakhstan really had any kind of bearing of, of what was happening in Ukraine, because what was happening in Ukraine was planned, it was premeditated. And like I said, from the Russian perspective, the Kazakh operation was a little, you know, a little detail, you had to put out a fire, and reap a little bit of PR benefit, and then you moved on to what was your plan all along. But if you look, the uh, if you flip the, the script, I think there is a there is a there is a, a clearer sense there that among people in the West. Russia intervening in, in, Ukraine, in Kazakhstan was seen as part and parcel of the broader imperialist Russia uh, going for Ukraine. And I think that is a mistake, again, because it gets you to the point of thinking that, well, Kazakhstan is now in Russia's pocket, Kaz- you know, drop Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan is a Russian ally, you know, maybe we should have sanctions on them as well because they're like Belarus in Russia's pocket. And I think that's a very dangerous proposition because the Kazakhs are, you know, they they put themselves themselves, or because of their informal politics, which we could discuss, they put themselves in a position where this happened. They had to appeal to the Russians, but they're doing everything they can. Uh, to 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 come back to this position of uh, of of maximizing their independence from Russia as much as they can, you can see this, for example, that you know they did not take the side of the Russians, they did not send troops as um, some reports suggest that Russia demanded. They have sent humanitarian aid to Ukraine. They have made a point of you know their their spokespeople are saying we don't want to be behind an iron curtain if one is coming down, and we definitely. You know, want to be uh, an independent country the way we were before this happened. And if you kind of put them in the Russian in in the Russian camp, just by because of what happened in January, I think you're you're undermining the ability for Kazakhstan to reemerge as an independent country in the region, which is very much something that is in the U.S. interest. Forget about if, for a moment what's good for Kazakhstan. If you look at what's good for the United States, we need the two strong countries in the region, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, to be as independent as possible, and we need to work with them as much as possible to reassure them, to build security cooperation with them, and other forms of cooperation so that they have alternatives to being with the russians
1: well i i couldn't agree agree with you more about that and uh, i i hear your message i hear your message loud and clear about uh, don't don't take the wrong lesson from the csto intervention in in kazakhstan but if i take a step back and look at uh, those events even if i take the wrong lesson and i'm not going to i'm not going to but let's let's just let's just let us just let us just play with this for a second. The way I see the world, the, the number one priority of the United States now is competition with China. Uh, Russia and China are globally in an alignment, maybe even an alliance in in certain areas. They both want to uh, want to undermine, weaken, supplant, whatever word you want to use, the American-led global order. One area in which one prominent area in which Russia and China's interests are not perfectly aligned, or, or are not aligned, is Central Asia. Yes. Yeah. So, I, it, the, the fact that the fact that Russia, in some ways, is operating in in Central Asia as a bulwark against Chinese encroachment. Is not necessarily a bad thing from the American point of view. Uh, that, that's how I see the world. Now, again, I heard your message loud and clear, and I and not not, not not just that I hear it, I'm convinced by it. But an American should look at this and see the independence and prosperity of these countries is in the American interest. Yes, absolutely. Right. But after that. The second most important thing is that they not is that they not be under the thumb of uh, uh, of China, and it's kind of it's kind of shocking to me when you look at the oil and gas resources of Kazakhstan. Uh, and you look at the at the hunger of the Chinese economy for uh, oil and gas. Uh-huh. You would have thought you would have thought that the Chinese would would have been in there like gangbusters. And I know there was some efforts and so on, but they they apparently have not as been as great as I, I I would have expected. So I don't know. That's not really a question, just a set of observations. Let's get a reaction from you.
2: No, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's interesting if you look at the Chinese BRI Belt and Road Initiative and the maps that China produces, you see all these infrastructure going through Central Asia all the way into the Caspian Sea and from the Caspian Sea through Azerbaijan and Georgia into Turkey on their maps. Well, when you look closer, you see that the Chinese haven't funded any of this, or in some cases, they've, they've, they, a, they are a partial contributor to some of these projects. But they just slammed the BRI um, label on, on some of these things anyway. Uh, but if you look closer, you'll find that, yes, there are countries in Central Asia that have indebted themselves to the Chinese very seriously, but that's the smaller countries like Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. The Uzbeks and the Kazakhs just haven't done that. They've managed to use their own resources, partly because they have uh, oil and gas production, and they've managed to keep themselves relatively independent of, of the Chinese. Yes, Russia uh, plays a role in that. But I don't think we should over overstate that because, you know, nobody is saying that you know we're going to replace russia in in central asia we're going to remove russia from central asia first of all it's not realistic second we're, we don't have the the uh, the bandwidth to do that um i think the the, the question is really a slightly different one do you want to leave the Central Asians as the meat in the sandwich between the Chinese and the Russians, or do you want to provide them with, um, uh, with alternatives? So to me, the the question of we, should we be there to prevent Russia from dominating and having China as our ally? Should we prevent the Chinese from dominating and having Russia as our ally? It's really beside the point. What's 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 needed in this region more than anything is. A robust American presence, a robust European presence—that uh, these countries have an ability to use in their balancing game. Because you know, let them do the balancing. Uh, that's what Central Asian khanates and you know principalities historically have always been good at doing. Uh, we have to play a role, so to speak, in the game they are they are playing. We have to give them the options because that, in turn, uh, <coughs> provides us with advantages. And the advantage, I think, is very simple. That exactly because these are middle sized countries um, who are stuck between great powers, that makes them naturally predisposed to American, uh, to a partnership with the United States because they don't want to be dominated by their neighbors. Because the United States is so far away, the United States is never going to dominate. And therefore, we're a natural ally for them. We're a natural partner in terms of maximizing their independence, which in turn is in, in our interest.
0: I'd like to go back to something you started at the end of your opening statement, and then we could get a bit to the Sweden and NATO question. You spoke specifically about how difficult it is to get folks to yes. understand how important Central Asia is. And this has been a recurring theme whenever Mike and I have spoke to people mm. about this, about, about this topic. So i yeah. we've gotten various different answers from different folks, but I'm curious what your perspective would specifically be.
2: You mean why this is the case?
0: Yeah. What, what what's the, the The analytical, maybe even the personal reason
2: I think there are several there are several things um, that are involved here a very simple one is. The tendency, you know, the Kissinger is perhaps the most, uh, Henry Kissinger is the best example, you know, the idea of we deal with great powers, we focus on the great powers. Uh, and the world is really about, you know, how the great powers relate with each other. And small states, well, whatever is going to happen to small states is going to happen to them. And it seems to me that, you know, it's much more productive to to look at small states as an asset in our relation, in, in our. Com- competition with the great powers and there is a there's a ten- tendency to view the the countries in central asia as a Stans, quote unquote because their name has to happens to end with stan um and therefore they're not really seen as real countries just the same way as you know we don't call senegal a, a post french country but we still call you know uh, kazakhstan and uzbekistan post soviet countries which kind of gives the implication that they're still somewhat of a russian con- connected republic and you know, it's still this is this is, this is the, the problems in Central Asia are, are Russia problems. So we don't really view them as the assets that they 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 are and they should be, and they're capable countries in many ways that they were not 30 years ago. But we seem not to have really internalized that. But I think increasingly over over time, I've come to think that one of the biggest problems is the bureaucratic boundaries of the U.S. government agencies. Um, by the way, do you know that in the U.S. government, first of all, the National Security Council and the State Department don't divide the world the same way? Um, there's a bureau in the State Department called the Bureau of South and Central Asian Affairs, where Central Asia has a relatively strong position, uh, you know, comparatively, because it used to be in a Europe Bureau and you know who in the Europe Bureau dealing with Russia, Turkey and EU issues, who has time for Central Asia, right? So there's a little bit more time for Central Asia in this Bureau. But the problem even there is that uh, this was a Bureau created by the Bush administration primarily to focus on Afghanistan. So you have everything to the north and everything to the south of Afghanistan in one Bureau. doesn't really make any sense anymore today. Uh, In in the National Security Council, Central Asia has been moved around. So in the Bush administration, yeah, it was with um, South Asia. Then the Obama administration moves it to Russia. Trump administration moves it back to to, to South Asia. And now we have, again, Central Asia being under Russia uh, at the National Security Council. So it's always an annex. It's always a little extra thing, appendix added to something that's more important whether that be uh, Afghanistan or whether that be Russia. So there is no bureaucratic process or bureaucratic institutions that allows the US government to focus on these countries because they're always secondary to something else. And I think that's, to me, increasingly uh, seems to be the biggest problem why the US government doesn't deal with um, uh, with or see Central Asia the way it should. Well, why we don't in the... the, um, and the analytic community has to do with other things. I think one first and foremost is I started. I came to Washington twenty, a little over twenty years ago, working on this region. There were more people working on Central Asian affairs twenty years ago than there are today in Washington D.C. And that might seem like news to you, but I think that's definitely the case. There is no the uh, you know the um, analytic interest has gone elsewhere. Does, and
0: quick quick question: sure. and does that obviously relate to the Afghan pullback?
2: I don't think so. I, I think it has to do with other things. I think, first of all, we have a serious problem that the area studies has been gutted. Area studies has been gutted in the universities and academia, and it's being gutted in the analytic, uh, you know, think tank community as well. And it's being dependent on on funders. You know, there's a lot of Middle East uh, work being done because there's a lot of Middle East funding uh, for, for for analytic communities in Washington D.C. As everybody knows. That's not the case for Central Asia. Uh, But I think even worse is the fact that, you know, we used to have, when I first came to DCA a fairly balanced approach where there was, you know, the what I call the normative aspect, the democracy and human rights interests. Then there was a security aspect, and there was the economic and energy issues. Well, the oil companies got the pipelines and the deals they wanted, so they're not involved anymore. The military and the security issues. People moved on. They focused on the Middle East, and now everybody's focusing on China. Nobody's really interested in Central Asian security. And if you look at any kind of funding for any analysis or research, everything is dominated by advocacy, by normative advocacy for human rights and democracy. Um, and that, to me, has skewed the entire approach to Central Asia. Because then, if you're only interested in, in, in human rights and democracy, then you become an you become adversarial towards the Central Asian states, and you view them as a problem. From the human rights and democracy perspective, they are only seen as a problem, and who likes dealing with problems all the time, right? Uh, whereas, if you look at economic, energy, security, and other issues, you see assets uh, in in these countries, and I think very few people deal with these countries from the point of view of security or economic uh, perspectives. Everybody more or less deals with them from the basis of what are the problems with human rights and democracy in these countries, and that. Then and that becomes that becomes very. Um, it kind of undermines U.S. foreign policy in the region, if you ask me.
1: Boy, I couldn't agree with that more. That's a whole. Um, we're going to have you back, um, and that's not a polite thing. We're going to have you back to to talk about that because I uh, um, I have come in, in recent years to exactly the same conclusion. It's extremely unpopular, and I want to be as unpopular as possible. So uh, I want to bring you back and and get you in, and see if I can generate some more enemies for you. Before Mar- Marshall wants to talk to you about uh, Sweden and, and, and NATO, but le- let me just ask you one more question about Central Asia. Imagine you're king for the day, king of the United States for the day, and you, can, you could carry out your one or two favorite policies uh, about t- towards Central Asia. I want to know what they were, what they would be. But before before I ask you that question, I want to tell you what my favorite policy would be, and I'd like you to tell me, in addition to your favorite policy, if if you think I am crazy, because I might, I, I very well might be crazy on this. I want Kazakh oil and gas to go through Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. I want pipelines, not just the occasional tanker. I want pipelines to mm-hmm. circumvent Russia, go to Europe through uh, Azerbaijan, which is my favorite country in the world these days. And I would like the United States government to get behind that. It's the, the importance of it. All this Kazakh oil and gas for the listeners is going to Europe through Russia. The Russians are taking a premium uh, on it. And so uh, there's no reason why the world should be set up this way. It could circumvent Russia, go to, go to Europe through Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Turkey. Is that realistic, Svante? Or would if the United States advocated such a program, would that just be putting a a target on the back of Mr. Tokayev as far as Mr. Putin is concerned? But would we just be causing trouble needlessly and, and, and and nobody would really want to do it? Or is that a really a doable project?
2: So, Mike, first of all, I agree. Absolutely. I'm going to get to a second point later, but this would have been one of the first things I would say is the east-west corridor. Now, what's happening in Ukraine is horrendous, but it provides an opportunity for the revitalization of this east-west link, which by the way, when we put the Caucasus, South Caucasus in one bureau, and Central Asia and another bureau in the U.S. government. Suddenly these bureaus don't talk to each other and any type of east-west connectivity disappeared. That happened 15 years ago. Uh, okay. The only pro- pro- uh, point where I think you're wrong is when you say circumvent. Because when you say circumvent, and I kind of, when I edit our publications, people send in articles, they always use the term pipelines bypass Russia. I always edit out the word bypass. Because if, if you're saying bypass or circumvent Russia, that assumes that going through Russia would be the natural state of things. And it isn't. If you look at a map and you see where are the oil fields in the Caspian, where are the, you know, where is the demand in, there's a lot of demand in Southern Europe. Well, if you want to go to Southern Europe, well, Russia is not necessarily your most natural way to export your, it's to draw, to build your pipelines. But no, you're absolutely right that this is, this is, this, this should be an absolute priority. The question is how you do it. If you do it the, you know, the, the way Mr. Biden or others tend to do things, which is by loud proclamations that are designed to be as controversial as possible, then yes, people in the region might say, well, is this going to create too much trouble for me or, or is it worth it? But they want this to happen. The Kazakhs more than ever now want this to happen because they can't get their oil to market. And the big oil from the Kashagan field in the North Caspian hasn't been It hasn't been determined yet how that's going to be exported. So yes, I think this absolutely can happen. The Kazakhs want it. The Turkmen probably want it in one way or another. It's just a matter of how do you make it happen? Do you make it in, you know, do you make it loudly or do you make it with small incremental step? Do you do it through financial means or political means? All that needs to be discussed. Which way, whichever way is the best way to do it. The the people in the region would know that best. There is another point, however, and that takes, it's a much longer term question. We have given up on or we haven't been interested in security in this part of the world. What we've learned from Ukraine is that the countries in this part of the world can defend themselves. They're not asking for us to defend them because whenever you start talking about security, people say, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Are we going to come and defend people all the way into Central Asia? No. You're going to help these countries defend themselves. Now, for example, in Kazakhstan, the, the president just made it very clear he doesn't have confidence in his security institutions. Well... Who is going to rebuild the security institutions in Kazakhstan to make sure that they're modern, service-oriented institutions rather than, you know, Soviet-era repressive institutions? Well, the Chinese and the Russians are not going to be able to help them do that. If this is what they want to do, we should move in, maybe discreetly, maybe openly, and help them rebuild security institutions. We should help them further develop their military forces, and we should be prepared to sell the military material so that they can build up their own defense against whoever, Russia or China would create, or Islamic radicals who would create trouble for them. But we have disregarded this security need in the region. And I think that's not something that's going to happen overnight. But uh, the sooner we can start doing that, the better.
0: And I'll just ask this last very open-ended question. This is all happening very quickly, so I don't want to date everything too much. But you know, we're speaking to you. Um, You're located in Sweden right now. So we'd love to just get your This is the worst pivot I've ever done in a podcast ever, but we're just going to keep rolling with it, but would love to get your perspective on Sweden's application to join NATO um, on a couple different levels. Just one before the war in Ukraine, like what was your personal perspective on that type of issue? And then how has the war um, shifted your perceptions or shifted just the obvious conversation that's happening in the country?
2: No, well, my, it's never shifted my perception because I, I, I've been a supporter of, I mean, I thought it was kind of obvious that Sweden, if it's, if it's a Western European country in a post Cold War situation, you, you have to be a member of, of NATO. It's, by the way, also strategically, if you look at the big difference, the Cold War, uh, the Baltic states were part of the Soviet Union. And therefore, you know, there was no real scenario in which the main focus of a big war in Europe would be in the Baltic Sea area. The moment the, uh, and I should add, the, the, the big scenario was big tank warfare, you know, the Fulda Gap, Eastern Germany, Western Germany, and the Central Europe. Um, now we're talking about a situation in which the Baltic states are part of NATO. That means you've shifted up the strategic um, area in theater of a possible war in the, in, in the middle of Europe for the north. And but the, the Swedish position was, well we support the, the NATO membership of the Baltic states, but we're not interested in joining. I didn't I never thought that made any sense. I thought that as, as soon as you see the Baltic states joining the, the security system has shifted and both Finland and Sweden should have joined NATO. The Finns are more pragmatic, but in Sweden it's always been a very ideological issue connected to this idea of Sweden as a as an independent vo- force in, in 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 world affairs that during the Cold War was neither really fully with the West nor with the East. Although now we know Which the Swedish public didn't know that the Swedish government had, you know, ties under the table with the NATO and the West and the United States that was much stronger than than what was ever announced. So the Russians already view Sweden as part of the West, but you don't have Article Five protection. So that never made sense to me, and therefore this all this is uh, very natural, and this is very, uh, very urgent. What's happening right now? I think what what this what really happened is that this uh, this war in Ukraine. You know, to people who don't follow Russia, like I have, um, they were shocked by this. I think some parts of it were shocking, but the fact that Russia wanted to control. Uh, you know, the fact that they are ready to bomb civilians, they did that in Grozny in Chechnya 20 years ago. So why wouldn't they do it here? Uh, and the fact that they want to control the their neighbors is not something new either. But to a lot of people who don't follow Russia on a day-to-day basis, the pictures coming out of Ukraine were absolutely shocking. It shifted their worldview and it made it possible to um, to basically make up with the... Uh, reality and myth of Swedish neutrality and um, abstention from any kind of uh, military alliances, and you know I think it's it's good that it happened. I applaud the government for doing it. I think it should have happened earlier, but uh, better late than never.
1: Svante, you're a, you're a, a, an expert on Turkey as well. Yes, and uh, sometimes. And I noticed that the, the Turks have um, put a little bit of a roadblock in the way of Sweden's accession to NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, demanding a basically demanding a shift on uh, Sweden's policy toward the PKK before Turkey will assent to uh, to Sweden joining. What's your read on the state of those uh, discussions?
2: Oh, I think that was absolutely to be expected. You know, nobody in Sweden six months ago expected that the country would be uh, would be would need Turkish approval for anything. Uh, and to tell you the truth, if I was the leader of Turkey, I would probably have done the same thing. I mean in the Turkish national interest, um, the and we've talked about this before, Mike, the uh, the fact that Western powers led by the United States by the way, invested very heavily in the Syrian uh, you know uh, Kurdish Syrian forces that were dominated by a PKK affiliate. Uh, it doesn't look very nice to the Turks. Now, I understand how this happened. I understand that the ISIS threat put the U.S. in a situation where beggars can't be choosers. Uh, I still think that the, uh, this could have been handled in a way that took account of Turkish, uh, what, we, what do we call it? We call it legitimate security interests in a different way that wasn't really done. Um, I think the, the fact is that We've been dealing with, uh, we've, we've been pretending that the PKK in Turkey is one thing, very bad thing, a, a terrorist organization, while we've said that the Syrian Kurdish organizations that are controlled by the PKK are heroes because they're fighting against the Islamic state. This was never coherent. And I think the fact is that many Western countries have done this. And and, and the fact that the Turks are, are using this, this opportunity to point that out and to... Um, Extract a uh, correction in terms of uh, in this case the policy of Sweden, but I also think it's aimed at the United States in some way. I think that's that's just something we have to to deal with. And in <clears throat> in, in in the Swedish case, I think there's just there there just has to be uh, a new realization that if you are going to be part of NATO, you are going to be uh, you're going to have to take into consideration and learn a lot more about the security. Uh, perspectives of all NATO members. And I suspect that that is what is happening right now as the delegation from Sweden is being dispatched to Ankara.
1: All right.
0: Well, Svante, we're at time, but this has been incredibly helpful, and I appreciate how we could just get the it's a pleasure. easier bit there uh, towards the end. But Mike, do you have anything to take us out with?
1: No, I just want to thank you, Svante, for, uh, for a very enlightening um, hour of discussion your brain was as big as I, uh, I'm sure our audience concludes that your brain was as big as I described it. And I uh, uh, thank you for that.
2: Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you, Mike, Marshall.
0: That's all we have here. Huge thank you to everyone for tuning in. Huge thank you to Mike and a huge thank you to Hudson Institute for supporting our work. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.